who fall into this esteemed category. Dr. Cassie Pittman Clare, good to have you on this program. How are you today? Excellent. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor and privilege to be here. It is an honor to have you here. I, I've uh, followed your work, and I'm delighted to have you on for the hour. So much to talk about, and I'm glad we got some time to sort of unpack this. Uh, as I said a moment ago, you know, when you say privilege, a conversation about privilege, everybody assumes you're talking about white privilege because there's so much conversation about that, maybe not enough, um, certainly not enough movement on the realities of white privilege. But um, how, how often do you uh, get people to raise their eyebrows when, when the word privilege comes out of your mouth preceded by the word black? Well, I think it's uh, really critical that we start examining racial progress and so much that has been accomplished by black people that sometimes we focus on racial oppression and racial inequality, which we should focus on, Mm -hmm. but we also have to acknowledge how much we have made progress. So my grandfather grew up on a farm. He had a fourth grade education. He migrated from Georgia to Ohio. And I have been able to earn a Ph.D. from a very elite university, Mm -hmm. right? So that is progress, and we have to acknowledge that. And that really is part of what the idea of black privilege um, entails, acknowledging the fact that there are now more and more blacks who have college educations, right, who have occupations and prestigious positions, who are earning you know, sizable incomes. We have to acknowledge that progress, and that is in part of what that term attempts to kind of accomplish. Like, we need to address what are the experiences of that population like. I mean, I don't think it means they're free from racism. <laughs> it just means that we have to acknowledge that they enjoy certain comforts, and they also have hard-earned certain entitlements, Right. Um, so when you're making $350,000 a year, you have certain entitlements. You enjoy certain comforts, and we have to acknowledge that that also happens today. It does indeed happen, uh, and uh, I can tell already we're going to need the full hour because <laughs> just in your first response, I'm ready to go. There's so many questions to ask throughout this hour, and we'll do it uh, for the hour with Dr. Cassie pittman Clater. One question before I move forward right quick here. Um, it occurs to me as you were talking uh, to ask whether or not, to your mind, privilege, uh, let me rephrase that, uh, whether or not progress is necessarily privilege. Does that make sense? Yes. So I think... Part of the idea of privilege is acknowledging there are certain advantages that come from being in the middle class Mm -hmm. that we have to acknowledge, right? Right. It means that you have access to certain material capital. Um, You have access to to some degree economic capital, and that could be leveraged. But it also means that you have certain skill sets that actually make you um, capable of navigating certain situations, which are an advantage not just to you, but also to other blacks, right? Mm -hmm. So being a black professor, I can outreach to students of color in ways that other professors can't. That is, in some sense, a unique cultural skill. And I think also acknowledging that is important, that being black and college-educated means you also have a lot of tools, yeah. That you are utilizing 
that other people don't have don't have access to. There are a lot of tools, but there are also a lot of responsibilities. It seems to me we'll talk about um, that dichotomy. We'll come back to this notion in a moment of progress, uh, necessarily being equated with privilege. And I want to I want to press her on this. Uh, I want to interrogate this a bit more. Uh, I want to pull the best out of her in this conversation. And it seems to me that you can you can progress or progress as a race. And I think we have. There's no doubt about that. We're much better off than we were a couple hundred years ago. And yet I'm not sure that progress um, for our race necessarily means that we are privileged. I, I think that the conversation is really about individuals who are privileged and not the collective. And I'm sure that Dr. Cassie Pittman Clayton might agree with me on that. We'll see. Uh, these hard earned entitlements are real. No, no, no question about that. But this question still remains as to whether or not we're talking about hard earned entitlements for the few or for the many and whether or not that then sets up a sort of us versus then uh, construct inside of black America. So much to talk about in this hour as we talk not today about white privilege, but about black privilege. Dr. Cassie Pittman Clayton on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now. It does indeed. I'm glad to have you with us today. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. So pleased to be uh, joined by an esteemed guest in this hour, Dr. Cassie pittman Um She's author of the book Black Privilege, Modern uh, Middle Class Blacks with Credentials and Cash to Spend. As I said, I love, love, love the title of her book. Um, and, and now seems to be a most propitious time to have a conversation about black folk who have done well, black folk in the middle class, upper middle class and beyond, because as this recession, I think, gets deeper, uh, it raises some significant questions about what happens to all this black capital that we, uh, some of us at least, have had access to over the years prior, and no better person to have on to discuss that and a great deal more than Dr. Cassie pittman Clayton. Uh So, uh, Dr. Cassie, we're talking before that break a moment ago. At least I was talking about this notion of progress and whether or not progress necessarily equates to privilege. Um, I was in a conversation the other day and uh, I was making the point that, you know, I've learned as a talk show host over all these years, you want the right answer. You got to ask the right question. And the question is not, you know, whether black folk are doing better today than we were 200 years ago. For God's sake, everybody knows the answer to that question is yes. The question is how black folk are doing today versus white folk today in real time. That is the real question the one has to wrestle with, it seems to me, to talk about whether or not we have made progress and whether or not that progress does, in fact, equal privilege. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. So I think we have made progress, and as a consequence of that progress, there is a contingent, there is a growing contingent within the black population that does experience what I think are real privileges. Mm -hmm. They are traveling the world. They are um, going and being a part of elite spaces. They are occupying, um, you know, prestigious occupations in in greater numbers. And I think that is both progress, but that also guarantees them access to certain resources, to certain opportunities, and um, that not all blacks have access to. So I think that is, in some sense, a privilege when you are gaining access to um, opportunities or resources that others don't have access to. That is a privilege. Some whites don't have access to. Um, working class whites are commonly excluded from certain elite spaces, which now have sizable, or not sizable, but have some blacks where, you know, previously they had none. Yeah. So, you know, I think, um, and, and we have to also... I think contend with the idea that within the black experience is is heterogeneous. Mm -hmm. So the black college educated person's experience 
is not the white college educated person's experience. <laughs> yeah. Not at all. Any respect yeah. to my saying that, but it's not also the experience of the black high school dropout. It's not also the experience of the black person who just has a high school diploma. If you have a college degree, you earn substantially more over the course of a lifetime. And I think we can't ignore that. That means your children might have better access to opportunities. That means you might live in different types of neighborhoods. That means that you might have access to life's pleasures and um, certain comforts. And I think we have to acknowledge that. That doesn't mean you're not experiencing racism. Sure. Sometimes you might experience more racism because you're navigating white spaces um, often as one of very few blacks, mm-hmm. right? And that's something that in the book I, I detail, you know, what does it mean to be one of few black investment bankers? That means you're navigating elite white spaces where black people and black culture is often devalued. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think there are certain, it is certainly, black privilege is not equivalent to white privilege in no way, shape, or form. It certainly is restricted and it certainly is, in many respects, um, is a, it's completely different in some respects. T- tell me, but yeah. I do think we have to... No, I, didn't yeah. mean, I didn't mean to cut yeah. you off. You're going, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Forgive me. You're going exactly yeah. where I wanted you to go, and I'm, I'm just trying to follow you here. Um, and I, this is the question I wanted to get to, so let's jump, let's jump on it right now. What, to your mind, you're the, you're the expert here. You've researched this, uh, this book, Black Privilege. Uh, what are the differences, if you could put your finger on just a few, the differences when you have a conversation about white privilege versus a conversation about black privilege? What are those distinct, uh, unique differences? So one of the things that I think is very different, which you kind of got at when you said, this, is, this, is, this, is there a new sort of us versus them within the black population, is mm-hmm. black people who are college educated and have economic advances are very cognizant of their relative advantage status, mm. right? They're very cognizant of that. I think white privilege is often based on its invisibility mm-hmm. and their lack of awareness of all the ways in which they are granted resources. And so I'll give you one example. When I talked to my respondents when I was doing my research, they wouldn't say I was lucky. They would say I was blessed. Mm. Or they would say, if, if not for the efforts of someone else, if, if so-and-so hadn't reached back and helped me out or, or done something for me in this regard, I wouldn't be where I am today. So it's a very different consciousness about how they got there, their responsibilities to help others, and they're very conscious that they are in a relatively advantaged stage in comparison to their poor or working class brethren. Mm-hmm. So I think that is a, is a critical difference, you know, um, even a sense of responsibility to engage in racial uplift is very different. Yeah. I was about, um, I was then, about to ask, what, what, what does that, what does that awareness then? I'm, gl- I'm glad you say that not at all surprised about that um, at all. Um, but what does that, that cognizance, what is that consciousness? What does that awareness ultimately lead to i mean put another way what's the payoff for us that negroes who make it are aware of the fact that they made it and it's not the same as making it in white america what do we get for that is there a plus is there an upside to that so i like to reference if you think about our families Mm -hmm. if you are if you're a college educated black person more than likely you have a family that does not encompass all college educated black people Mm -hmm. so you're oftentimes and there's research that shows this time and time again Middle-class blacks are constantly giving more to help out family members mm. to um, when people are in tight situations. So, you know, I think this idea that there is like this separate um, experience, it might be 
in some sense separated, but there's a lot of of um, giving back to the church, giving back to family and friends. So when one person makes it, it's not they're not um, disconnected to other people who are maybe not as economically advantaged. Yeah. And I think that also separates black middle class people because research shows they do that a lot more often. Um, so I think that, you know, that's one way to look at it as not a, you know, a few people benefit and other people are left behind. It's it's kind of like we all, one person makes it and we all kind of benefit. And even in asking black people in my study about their aspirational consumption, so not actually things that they buy, but if they were to hit the lotto, what would they buy? <laughs> and high on the list were homes for their mothers or family members, mm. um, making sure that brothers and sisters g- get a college education or get out of debt, giving back to their church, building community centers. These are not uh, material aspirations that only benefit the one individual. Yeah. This is thinking about how you can utilize your position to benefit black people broadly and also black people who are in your own kinship network. Yeah. So I think that that is also a critical element of black privilege that separates it from white privilege. This idea that once you make it, you have some sense of obligation to help others, which was very common among those who I, you know, collected my data from. Yep. Again, not surprised to hear that at all. And I, I, I can speak to that. You mentioned the black church. I can just say amen to that because that's one of that's one of 10 kids. <laughs> uh, and most of my audience knows is one of 10 kids. And I've been blessed to do to do quite well in my career. I'm grateful for that. I've been rich and I've been poor. Trust me, rich is better. Uh, and so uh, I've been fortunate to, to send siblings to college. Many of them listening right now. I've sent them to Morehouse. I've sent them to Hampton. I've sent them to grad school. So I, I know what it's like to not 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 necessarily bear that burden. For, for me, it's a joy. There's a joy in being able to turn around and to help your siblings and to see that in one generation of my family, we uh, because we had access to education, I'm the first person on either side of my family, mother or father, um, to go to college and get a degree. And then behind me come you know nine other siblings. Uh, most of them who now have many of them who have college degrees and some advanced degrees. Uh, so I've seen in my own lifetime how education access to it can turn the fate. Uh, the fate and the future of just uh, of, of one black family. And I know many, many other black folk who have the same story. Um, so I, I hear you loud and clear on that. I guess what troubles me about this conversation vis-a-vis black privilege outside of our community um, is that when the conversation is had, uh, people will point to a variety of things and suggest that things are better for black folk than they've ever been. They will point to our uh, uh, data uh, and, 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 in, and in very mean-spirited ways oftentimes suggest you, y'all are a whole lot better off here than you would have been in Africa. Um, so, you know, you, and we've all heard these kinds of comments in our political discourse, which sadly is getting uglier and uglier by the day. I raise all this, Dr. Cassie pittman Clater, because it seems to me that unlike the white community, and you a moment ago unpacked the distinct differences in definition between black privilege and white privilege, it seems to me, though, that inside of black America, there are, we, we, it's, it's an, the, the, the black privilege is, is and has been reserved for a, a, a relative few number of people, comparatively speaking. That is to say, when you look at the collective, the whole of black people, um, black people in many ways are still three-fifths of a person. Uh, and I mean that economically speaking, as you well know, we earn three fifths to this day of what white folk earn. So, yes, there is some black privilege, 
But by and large, the data is incontrovertible that black people still lag far behind in every single leading economic indicator category, in every category. So I wonder sometimes whether or not the conversation about black privilege, while it is real, and I'm glad you did the research that no one has done prior to you, while it's real, on the other hand, I wonder whether or not it's overstated. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say th- there, you talk about economic inequality, but in so many different domains, we're, they're just not equal. We're, the equal outcomes are non-existent. Mm-hmm. Wealth, um, educational attainment, health, you know, um, middle-class black women fare far worse in terms of maternal outcomes than even poor white women. So across almost, I feel like so many social indicators, racial disparities are not just present, but in some sense even worse than they were, you know, 30, 50 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. And um, certainly having a college degree or being economically advantaged does not privilege you from exclusion from some of those ways in which structural and institutional racism disadvantage blacks. So I don't mean to um, undermine this idea that because a few, or, or and I won't say a few, because, you know, something like 30, 30, 30% of blacks are college educated. Um, if you add in those who have some college degree, some college, you know, so associates, or mm-hmm. maybe they went to college but didn't complete, the number goes farther up. In New York City, for example, is 53% of blacks. Mm-hmm. That's not just a small portion, mm-hmm. right? That's substantial. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean we're free from all the the oppressive elements of our society. And you're exactly right. When compared to whites, the statistics don't fare well. So, I mean, I think that's just a part of the reality we live in. I do think it is important to think about how do different people experience structural racism? And so how is racism experienced by college-educated blacks as compared to those who are um, exclude or who are who have less education or less, um, you know, might be poor working class. I'll give an example. If you look at interactions with the criminal justice system, the likelihood of being incarcerated, you know, that's not very. Um, if you look at middle class blacks as compared to poor blacks, there are stark disparities, intra-racial differences in outcomes with interactions with the criminal justice system, being middle class in many respects kind of buffers black people from having not necessarily poor interactions with the police, but from being incarcerated um, with these, you know, severe, mm-hmm. um, lengthy sentences. Let me, so- <clears throat> let, me, let me cut in right there for a second. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm looking at my clock here. I've got news, traffic, and sports. I want to get out of the way. Excuse me. Let me do the news, traffic, and sports and get my get my throat together. Uh, and we'll continue this conversation. We're talking, in case you've just tuned in, and you can probably tell, we're talking about today privilege, but not white privilege, black privilege, with the author of Black Privilege, Modern Middle Class Blacks with Credentials and Cash to Spend. Her name is Cassie Pittman-Clater, Dr. Cassie Pittman-Clater. We'll continue our conversation with her about black privilege when we come forward. You're listening to KBLA Talk 15A. Find a righteous range and don't be afraid to say what you see. We're KBLA Talk 1580. So far, so good. I'm Tavis Smiley. She's Dr. Cassie Pittman Clayton. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number 1 800 920 1580. I say so far, so good because uh, I know something you don't know, Dr. Cassie Pittman Clayton. 
literally any minute now is about to drop a baby. And uh, <laughs> I am hoping and praying that we get through this hour without her uh, having to be rushed to the hospital to deliver this baby. Uh, so we got through the first half. Now we're on the back half. Uh, we could have our first KBLA baby here. Who you know? We could have our very first KBLA right. baby. Uh, but the boys should be named Tavis. Well, I don't know about all that now. I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that to the baby. <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that to. And, I, and, I, and your husband might have something to say about that. You know what? You know what's, what's funny about that? Since you went there, it, it, let me just do this right quick because it uh, it occurs to me. So I've been very fortunate, of course, and very blessed in my career to try to do my part to love and serve our people. And I remember many years ago, the very first time I was doing a book signing and a husband and wife came up to me and introduced their baby to me and told me they had named the baby after me. And I was just, I was gobsmacked. I mean, I literally just broke down in tears in the middle of this book signing with hundreds of folks standing in line. Because um, I, I couldn't imagine that, you know, someone, you know, respected me enough to name a baby after me. And of course, it happened many times after that. So I have a, literally a photo album of all these babies named Tavis across the country, uh, who I have not sired, by the way, but a bunch of babies named Tavis. And I've tried to keep up with many of them over the years, but it's just such a great honor uh, to have someone name a baby after you. And I, I remember the first time it happened, again, it just completely blew me away. Uh, but I feel sorry for those babies. I, I wouldn't do that to uh, do that to your child. Uh, but it was a, it was a, it's a, it's a it's a great honor when uh, somebody does that for you. And I, I was talking to Mandela Barnes the other day. Of course, we ran that Senate race uh, in uh, in Wisconsin, lost that race very close against Ron Johnson. But what you know, it means something when you carry a name like Mandela. I know a bunch of kids named after Ali. I mean, it's a it's a it's a significant mm-hmm. thing. So is this your first baby, by the way? First one? No, we actually have a little girl who okay. we named Lula after our my grandmother and my great aunt, who my great great aunt was, who's the first woman in our family. She went to Tuskegee. Wow! So we were trying to honor, you know, the idea of going to college, there being, you, you know, of being a, um, uh, taking the family to the next generation, you know. Mm-hmm. No, it means something. There's so many. I mean, this is some, speaking of black folk. We're talking about black, black privilege in this hour. And one of the things that I hope black privilege affords you is the education uh, that makes you wise enough not to name your baby something crazy. Uh, I was in an airport one time and ran into uh, a family and they wanted me to take a photo with their twins, Dr. Cassie Pittman Taylor. I got on my knees. uh, They were just babies, got on my kids, got on my knees in the airport and took a photo with these two kids. And while I was down there, I asked them what their names were. I kid you not. uh, These kids names fraternal twins, uh, Alizé and Cavassier. Right. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> so I know you're not gonna do that to your baby, <laughs> but it, it 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 means something when we name kids, uh, uh, give kids names that actually have a meaning. And so uh, so Lulu is gonna have a uh, a brother or sister, I guess, in a few hours. So let me move through this conversation and get you out of here. Uh, we're talking again with Dr. Cass Pittman Clater about black privilege. Her book is called Black Privilege: Modern Middle Class Blacks with Credentials and Cash to Spend. I've said it three times. I love the title. By the way, how did you come up with that? But that's a that's a great title. I love it. Um, you know, this book was such a long time in the in the making, and I think I. Um, I, I, I can't even pin down the exact moment, but right. I really wanted to spotlight this idea in part because so much literature focuses on when black people don't have any income or when they don't, when they lack credentials. So I wanted to highlight, you know, what happens with when we do have elite credentials, when we do have money in our pocket, mm. how does that impact our experience of, of you know, modern day life? So really yeah. focusing yeah. on 
and then thinking about all the ways in which being a black being black and having access, what does that mean? What does that yeah. translate into? Yeah. Um, Chris Rock uh, told, uh, famously or infam infamously told a joke some years ago. We all recall the joke. We all saw the special. Plug your ears if you don't want to hear me say the N-word because it's part of the joke. It's Chris Rock. So, Chris, you recall uh, once said that uh, there are black folk and there are niggas and even black folk don't like niggas. That was the joke. Everybody heard it. We laughed at it. But that, that joke pointed up so much we could do literally a seminar on the meaning and the layers behind that joke that Chris Rock once told that, again, everybody recalls and uh, kicked up all kind of not just laughter again, but 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 deep conversation. And and for me, <clears throat> one of the layers that one has to wrestle with when you unpack that joke and the meaning behind it uh, is that there are classes. There is a class structure, of course, inside of black America. Uh, and Chris was getting at something that was a bit more cultural, but I want to talk about now more about the economic piece of this and, and ask you whether or not when you talk about black privilege, there is now more than ever inside intra-black America, this us versus them reality. And so that when people become black and privileged, um, oftentimes, it, it, again, it, 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 there's a dividing line. Um, there's a construct that's created where you get this sort of us versus them reality that plays out in a variety of ways, or is that not your experience? Did that not show up in your research? So I think it, there's two ways, and people often talk about, I think there's like, for some reason, there's a hypersensitivity among black people to focus on where we're, there are points of tension or fracture, mm -hmm. and they certainly exist, but there are also lots that unite us. Mm -hmm. So I will say part of the book, one of the concepts I try to put forth is the idea of black cultural capital all the cultural resources that black people have that unite us across classes, that unite us even across ethnic backgrounds. It could be the music we listen to. Um, it could be our food, our cuisine, our language, our slang. There's so many different uh, our, our interests, our our desire to travel to certain places, travel to Egypt or, you know, we have a lot of cultural linkages mm -hmm. that unite us. We also have class-based cultural sensitivities and dispositions which might separate us. And that might be, like you said, naming practices, mm -hmm. right? It might be in terms of how you um, approach parenting. There's lots of research that shows parenting styles radically differ depending on class status. So I think that in many ways we are united by our similar racial cultural capital, our black cultural capital, and there are ways in which we are separate, separated or made distinct by our class sensibilities, right? Mm -hmm. And in, in many respects, if you have certain class sensibilities, that, those are going to be rewarded in certain environments. So, for example, my husband's an avid golfer. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. gains him access to certain environments that if he didn't understand the rules of the game or not, not just understand but be able to execute and play so well, that wouldn't, he wouldn't, those doors wouldn't be open to him. So there's also this idea of class-based culture that can open doors. So I think we have to make this distinction. There certainly is, which I think in that Chris Rock joke, he's highlighting class-based differences. He doesn't talk about love of jazz or certain styles of worship, mm -hmm. which unite black people. He's talking about um, parental, 
parental practices, you know, certain other um, ways in which class, I think, often informs behavior. Mm -hmm. So I think that 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 would be the distinction I make. And I think in many respects, when you're black and you're in elite positions, you still go to, you might still go to the same barber that you went to, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, that doesn't mean you now go to a high status elite white barbershop. You know, you're still connected through the, those black cultural traditions, rituals, knowledge bases, understandings. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, <clears throat> then, when we come forward here, I want to I want to pivot from that to this, and that is this notion of hard earned entitlements that you that you addressed earlier. I want to I basically not just pivot. Let me be frank. I want to flip it um, because we've talked about the advantages of black privilege. I want to talk now about the challenges that come along with being black and being privileged. They are uh, privileges, I should say. Uh, hard-earned, and there are entitlements that come along with that. Uh, but there are also challenges, as these uh, black privileged individuals, uh, don't I know, try to navigate these elite white spaces. Uh, and I want to talk about that side of the coin when we come forward. In this conversation about black, about black privilege, modern middle-class blacks with credentials and cash to spend, and the author of that fine text, Dr. Cassie pittman Clater, you're listening to KBLA Talk 15. Conversations that matter. matter. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. You are listening to Tavis Smiley and Dr. Cassie pittman Clater on KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580. Back to our conversation now uh, with Dr. pittman Clater about black privilege. Um, so let's talk about the, the other side of this coin. And that is um, the difficulties, the challenges that uh, black folk who are privileged have trying to navigate uh, these elite white spaces. You mentioned earlier that these are hard-earned entitlements. Indeed, they are. While on the one hand, we could hate, we could be jealous of black folk who've done uh, quite well in their various fields, uh, but it's not a cakewalk for these black folk, is it? Not hardly. Not hardly. They are constantly being surveilled. Often they are policed and um, not seen as legitimate or qualified or legit. So that is certainly an extra burden that they they have to navigate. Mm-hmm. When we when we talk about uh, police, um, it, it allows me to actually to turn back to the point you were making earlier about the ways in which sometimes being black privilege allows you to avoid interactions with the criminal justice system uh, that Pookie uh, might not uh, be able to avoid. Um, g- give me a sense of what you mean by that and what you what your research actually found in that regard. So, um, you know, having access to a lawyer, you know, I don't know how many lawyers, you know, I know quite a few. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that in itself can be make a world of difference. Um, But I I, I just I use that as an example of, of showing how there there are these different outcomes within race that are important to, I think, understand how structural racism impacts different segments of the black community differently. Right. And so we have to we have to if we really want to understand and unpack how racism operates in modern day America, we have to realize that it is very it operates differently depending on different social positions. But um, in terms of policing a privilege, I mean, you could also argue in some respects that might shape their decision making. So you might not want to buy that Benz if you live in a white neighborhood, if you're Mm -hmm. a black doctor because you know that means you're going to get pulled over more often so it it also shapes decisions um um in ways i think 
are important to highlight because I think a lot of the sort of public pronouncements are if black people would just go to school, if they would just work hard, if they would just, you know, um, achieve professionally, then they wouldn't have all these problems. But that really doesn't address all the ways that racism is still operative at an elevated rate, even if you have done all those things, right? Mm -hmm. So all those prescriptive things that, um, you know, society deems as necessary to achieve the American dream, that doesn't, that doesn't re alleviate racism for this contingent of blacks. Yeah. And I think that's important to illustrate that racism is operative no matter where you are in the class spectrum, mm -hmm. instead of focusing so much on what are some of the adverse impacts of racism for the poor. We need to focus on that, but we need to focus also on how it just operates across the board. No, I, I take that. I receive that. Um, we were uh, speaking about Chris Rock earlier. Speaking of comedians, great black comedians, Dick Gregory comes to mind. And Gregory used to tell the story, uh, God rest his soul, uh, Dick Gregory, brilliant comedian, used to tell the story about the, the deacon, the black deacon at the black church who had worked hard his whole life and bought him a brand new Cadillac, but he would only drive that Cadillac to church on Sundays. He would not drive it to work during the week. Because he, Dr. Cassie Pittman Clayton, did not want the white folk judging him, uh, being punitive and pejorative uh, toward him because he drove a Cadillac, a brand new Cadillac. And so, again, it underscores the ways in which uh, we are viewed uh, when you are black and privileged, uh, the ways in which you are viewed by black people, not always the same way that you are viewed by white people. It is a conundrum. It's a tightrope, to put another way. Our remaining moments with Dr. Cassie Pittman Clayton talking about black privilege when we come forward on KBLA Talk 15. Interrogating your assumptions and expanding your inventory of ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. A little less than five minutes to go with Dr. Cassie Pittman Clater, and I will have done my part to <laughs> survive this baby dropping in uh, in, in Cleveland. And I, don't, I, don't, I hope your husband ain't on the golf course right about now, just in case. No. Okay. Too okay. Cold. Good. Too cold anyway. Yeah, in Cleveland. <laughs> I forgot about this that time of year. Yeah. Um, let me let me let me let me raise two other issues <laughs> before I lose you in this hour, and I've enjoyed this immensely. One, um, what, what, to your mind, what are the takeaways um, from all of these African-American firsts, talking about black privilege, these African-American firsts that we continue to see, you know, day in, day out, week in, week out? Um, on the one end, to my mind, these African-American firsts are something to celebrate, uh, and I've been fortunate to have a few of those in my own career. On the other hand, it reminds me of all the ground that we have yet to cover, all the ways in which we've been denied uh, opportunities to operate in certain elite white spaces. I'm thinking now of KBJ on the Supreme Court. I'm thinking of, you know, uh, Lisa Cook at the Fed. I'm thinking of you know, a number of other positions. You know exactly what I'm talking about. But these African-American first continue to happen, not because we've not been qualified and talented to exist in mm -hmm. these spaces, uh, but because we've been denied access. Jesse Jackson tells the story all the time that Jackie Roosevelt Robinson wasn't the first brother that could play Major League Baseball with the white boys. Mm -hmm. He was the first one they gave the opportunity to play baseball with the major in the Major Leagues with, with the white boys. So I, in this conversation about black privilege, we continue to experience these African-American first. How do you process that? How do you see that? So the last chapter in the book is called Striving and Surviving. Mm -hmm. And I think that encompasses a lot of what you're saying that it's a it's a bifurcated experience of of advances and still yet new and um, nuanced struggles but i would say we're 
moving towards a more racially diverse America. So if you're under 18 today, you're already a part, the, the number of racial minorities exceeds that of whites. It's already more racially diverse. And as, um, you know, the demographics are changing. So one of the key strengths, one of the assets, the skill sets that I think advantages middle-class blacks and something that they are cultivating and developing is this ability to navigate different types of cultural terrains, which I call cultural flexibility. Mm-hmm. Being able to be, um, you know, draw on their black culture in one setting, draw on their knowledge of elite settings in another settings, being dynamic in a way that I think is an advantage. And I think if we can continue to cultivate that as the world becomes more and more diverse, we'll increasingly be in a position of strength. And we can also be in those positions of power in ways that uh, whites have just simply not engaged in those positions in ways that are more equitable, that are more progressive, that are more oriented towards the collective interests, um, that are, that attempt to create more equitable conditions. So I think if we can draw on our ability to navigate and also maintain that sense of collective orientation, I think that the world would be a better place. Yeah, the world, would, the world would, in fact, be a better place. Let me ask you in the 90 seconds I have left, though, whether or not all that said, you think the future of black privilege and black power uh, is escalating or de-escalating? Does it increase or does it wane? I think it increases. I think um, as long as we're capable of retaining some of the advantages that were established, um, you know, in prior generations. So, you know, in the state of Georgia, which I'm sure y'all going to delve into, there are always all these ways in which they have tried to roll back, you know, um, the ability to access voting. So we have, it's a continual fight. It's, it's never, it's never sort of a, a battle won. It's a continuous fight. And I think, you know, if we continue to be at the forefront of that fight and lead in a different way, um, then I think we can, we, we will continue to make progress. We've, mm-hmm. we've done so far. I, I feel like when you look at the progress black people have made, it's actually quite remarkable. No doubt about it. Uh, no doubt about and it. And so I think that shows that we're quite resilient and we're resourceful. So I, I'm hopeful. Yeah. Um, nothing wrong with hope. Uh, and I hope you have a healthy, happy, beautiful baby <laughs> in, uh, in the moments after this conversation. I'm glad we got through it. I'm glad you agreed to do it. And what a great conversation it was. Her name is Dr. Cassie Pittman Clater. Uh, her book is called Black Privilege, Modern Middle Class Blacks with Credentials and Cash to Spend. As she already teed up a moment ago, we are, in fact, in the next hour going to talk about Georgia. We're going right there right now to talk about this race between Warnock and Walker, and what will happen at the end of this day. But for now, we thank Dr. Cassie Pittman-Clater for this conversation. Wish her all the best, she, her husband, and that growing family. Thank you for your time, Doc. All the best to you. Thank you so much. I enjoyed our conversation. I enjoyed it immensely. Thank you for your time. Our two of Tavis Smiley after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 1580.